The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? In the current age of blockbuster Marvel movies, it is difficult to remember an age when adapting comic books to movies was toxic in Hollywood's eyes, an absolute waste of time and money. Tim Burton exploded that myth with his take on Batman in 1989. Decades later, you can find countless movies that are based on comic books, and often the movie audience is completely oblivious to the source material. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. The red comic books are dark and almost obscenely violent, but somebody in Hollywood saw potential to make this a colorful, comedic spy fantasy, and we're going to give it our usual tradecraft treatment in this episode of Spies Like Us. Red is a 2010 film. It is contemporary fiction, uh, primarily features the CIA one KGB agent and uh, briefly a South African mercenary hit squad based on a comic series by Warren Ellis, who also wrote uh, James Bond comics for Dynamite. So uh, I guess they, they liked him as a, as a spy writer for comics. Uh, he's also written some X-Men and Iron Man stuff for Marvel. He's mostly known for his independent creations like this one and also Transmetropolitan. You ever heard of that one? No, that is a that is a comic that's basically it's Hunter S. Thompson in a cyberpunk future uh, <laughs> kind of character. It sounds like right up your alley. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, it hits a lot of my buttons. Um, the comic I did get my hands on it at the last minute, uh, the first couple issues, and uh, yeah, not funny, not funny like this movie is. Um, this movie's hilarious, by the way. Of the spy comedy movies we've done on this podcast, this is the first one we've done, in my opinion, that is actually genuinely funny. Although uh, jokes about women being abducted, if those trigger you, uh, there's there's definitely some stuff here that is not going to hit you as very funny at all, I think. I don't um, think it would trigger anybody other than dudes trying to pretend to be feminists. Because apparently, if this is a reference to romance novels... There's tons of abduction in romance novels. It's pretty silly. I give massive credit to this uh, to this actor. What's her name? Mary Louise Parker as Sarah yeah. Ross. Uh, this is uh, she. She's got just the right just the right mix of uh, some kind of chemistry and some kind of relationship with danger. And and her, you know, thrilling to it uh, that that carries the movie in a way that I think is really necessary for it not to to seem awfully awfully weird. And everybody in the film is definitely like um, playing on Bruce Willis's wavelength. Malkovich, Mirren, Brian Cox, Richard Dreyfuss. These are people who. Generally, have some serious dramatic chops. I said the same thing with sneakers with a movie like this. Like, it's so essential that everyone is like playing at the exact same like frequency of of seriousness, or it's it's not going to work. You know, like like right. the the band has to be playing the exact same pitch 
of of the song or something. And the pitch of this song is, of course, like the the standard Bruce Willis wavelength, because you can't super expect him to like move it up or down a notch. I love Bruce Willis, but um, yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, really funny. It's yeah. So I was I was going with a. It's a common. It's like if you put the the flavor of sneakers onto the born identity plot <laughs> and then mixed mixed yeah. in some mixed in a little romancing the stone like in romancing the stone you know you get the female character is like someone that is uh into these spy romance novels and bruce willis is kind of like a character that stepped right out of the books similar to the way that uh michael what's his name is is just exactly like a character right out of Kathleen Turner's uh, books in Romancing the Stone. And it's not just my intuition that says that, I think, because someone else pointed out that uh, the book that they're both reading is uh, it's called Love's Savage Secret. Uh-huh. And, and the two novels that were um, referenced in Romancing the Stone, written by the, the main character, were Love's Wicked Kiss and The Savage Secret. So Love Savage Secret is kind of like a it's probably an intentional like combination of those two things. I think. Oh, nice. That's a nice easy egg. Uh I would say this movie makes almost no goddamn sense. Um <laughs> it's there is a plot. It's just the movie isn't super interested in plot consistency and yeah. it's having just way too much fun laughing at itself to like take itself seriously i mean not to downplay the film but you're absolutely right it, it, like when you actually like sit down and have those icebox uh moments uh, like we don't want to downplay this film as far, as far as like y- y- you're gonna enjoy watching it it's a lot of fun like i i would highly recommend it the movie's got an almost cartoonish disregard for the consequences of violence like people really just waltz through like all these life and life or death situations as as if it's kind of a joke, you know. And it's mm-hmm. supposed to go to the like the comedic conceit of, you know, been there, done that, you know, been through right. this, you know, done this a hundred times before. That's a funny tone to take, I think. I, I just wanted to point it out. It was it was very distinct. Uh, to me. Yeah, the the dark humor of death kind of reminded me of like Gross Point Blank. You know, Gross Point Blank even has got like way more uh, gravitas to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. This movie, this movie is light, light on its feet, but it, but it's a, but it dances, it dances quite well. Everyone is like, all the characters are constantly talking about how they. You know, they might try to kill each other like at any moment or have reason to, but nobody's guard is is ever actually up. They just kind of play that for the the laugh, the yeah. wink, uh, and right. and move on. Nobody's nobody's actually like watching their backs. Yeah, it's kind of like a real recognize real. You know, like like in any uh, industry, like it's a small circle. You know what I mean? And and so it, it like it, it it's it kind of helps to the suspension of disbelief on a lot of spy films that you would think like this is your trade like you you kind of know everybody in the trade 
So like, I think that's where that trust kind of comes from. I still think it is worth the minus spy points dinger for the fact that, you know, you present the concept that I might try to kill you at any time and then just completely forget about it. Two thousand ten, uh, Bruce Willis. I mean, Bruce Willis. He's he's still he's still kind of on top of his game. I, I don't know. I mean, he's in the latter part of his career, but uh, he still does he still does cool stuff. Although he does uh, seem to also be doing like since then a lot of just cashing a check kind of movies. Um, I think the number of movies that I've I've seen ads for saying like. Hey, remember me? I'm the guy from Die Hard. Is is a lot, and even, <laughs> I even see there's another uh, there's a, a movie uh, called McLean that's uh, in production somewhere along the way. So still kind of beating that dead horse, and I'm 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 definitely over John McLean. I mean, Die Hard is still one of the best movies of all fucking time, but uh, I I don't I don't need I don't need to keep having more and more of those. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather see him do stuff like uh, let's see what what's he done also since 2010 Moonrise Kingdom, fun in that and uh, Looper. Those are two solid movies that I think both made really good use of his talents. Uh, notes on other actors that I had. Um, I have been on record for a long time that uh, I just at some point I felt like I was completely saturated with uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, you know, I've loved him in a lot of stuff, but at some point it seemed like, you know, like, come on guys, there are other older black actors in the business. I, I kind of feel like the same way you do that. Like Morgan Freeman gets really typecasted. Like they're just trying to bring Shawshank Redemption back, you know, but um, like he has actually a lot of talents that really get overlooked and, and, and uh, I think I think we got a little bit of a different Morgan Freeman in this one. I agree. I did like him in this. Um, Helen Mirren specifically signed on this movie because she wanted to work with Bruce Willis. That's a that's a little bit of a head scratcher, but okay. Um, and she specifically trained for like she did like two weeks of firework firearms training. Uh, for this movie, awesome on her. She's a very great actress. I don't think I've ever had a problem with her. Like just going back into her stuff. What's it's, What's it's, your favorite? I know the name. I I'm having trouble thinking of of Helen Mirren movies. What's one you like? Well, she was the queen in Prince of Egypt, and I know you you're the one that like hammered that into me. Uh, but I also know something that you're a big fan of what's that she was she was morgana in excalibur 81 oh that's right oh my god <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> and i see here too gosford park as a fan of that one i think though generally yeah. it, she i think she mostly shows up in movies that are not the kind of movies that that put my butt in the seat at the theater but, uh, right, but I mean, like, like I don't think I can meet anyone in the entire world that would say Helen Mirren's a bad actress. Like, she's she's fantastic. Ernest Borgnine shows up in this one. This is uh, this is right at the end for him, though. He he's uh, ninety three in this film, 
and dies two years later, was working all the way to the end. In fact, his last credit was uh, voice work stuff for SpongeBob SquarePants. What a, Aww, what a champ. Yeah, no, seriously. Aww. Aww. I, I love when actors like are like dedicated actors. You know, when you look at their list and they're just like always in something. Yeah, never stopped working, which uh, which warms my heart because clearly acting was very important to him. I did a check for Borgnine spy movies. I found one in 1960 called Man on a String. I added it to the list. Maybe we'll get to it someday. We get more Carl Urban in this film. I've always been like a low-key Carl Urban fan, especially when he was cast as Bones in the Star Trek reboot uh, Bones being uh, Bones McCoy being my favorite character from the original series. Uh, I was like, what the fuck? That makes no goddamn sense to me. Uh, Carl Urban. I, I was thinking about all his movies that I'd seen him in. And I was like, this guy's a mini boss. This guy is not. <laughs> this, this guy can't play Leonard McCoy. And uh, I distinctly went into that theater with my arms firmly crossed saying, okay, show like I'm I'll try to keep an open mind, but let's see what you got here. And then from the moment he shows up on screen, I was like, I think this was the greatest casting decision of all time. As, <laughs> as far as being able to spot the diamond in the rough of, of right. what you could bring to that. I, I Funny enough, I didn't recognize him in this until you pointed it out. I was like, oh, shit, we got another Carl Urban. The problem is, is I think I uh, had binged the boys since then. And uh, all I could see is that beard. And and he doesn't have an accent in this. He, he did the American. Well, he does. He has an American accent because he's British, I guess. Is he? I believe so. I'm going to check that I'm thinking New Zealand. Yep. Oh, no, never I'm, mind. Yeah, I'm thinking New Zealand. And yep, I just looked it up and that's that's the one. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely New Zealand. But yeah, he's. Uh, I feel like in 90% of his movies, and this is probably not true, it's just my impression, but I feel like in 90% of his movies, he's just the guy that the hero needs to beat up before he can get to the final boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's about all I had to say about the movie itself. Anything else from you before briefing room? Not really, other than I highly recommend it. I, okay. Like, yeah, like I, I this is this movie is very rewatchable. Um, yeah. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Uh, Frank Moses, um, when we get introduced to him, all we know is that he's retired and that he's got a flirtatious relationship with, uh, oh, some chick that's supposed to be handling his pension checks. Uh, when he gets attacked by a team of very serious-looking SWAT-equipped motherfuckers in his home... <laughs> The movie knew that it didn't need to previously establish to us that he's a badass because we already know he's Bruce Willis. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. But, you know, at that point, I don't think they'd even mentioned that he was uh, retired from, from what? You know, although it turns out to be uh, from the CIA. In the assault scene where, of course, he, like, you know, cleans their clocks and utterly destroys them. Um, a few fun things. First one I wanted to mention is this corner shot which is an Israeli-developed weapon accessory. The weapon itself is, um, it's, it's not, it's not in exactly a firearm. It's more of a, like an accessory to which like several different types of machine pistols can be mounted. And it was first demonstrated in 2003. So yeah, by 2010, it had definitely been around. Um, I was just kind of surprised something like this neat uh that uh it's 2020 is the first time i'm seeing it on screen because you would almost expect to see it in like every swat movie (laughs) um i did not understand why they uh had a syringe and you know if the i mean obviously that implies because they could just kill him well, I mean, it, I guess it implies a, a few things. Number one, could be they were trying to take him alive. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right, because the objective was to kill. I just thought of another, just now, I thought of what I think is actually the explanation of the syringe is because they probably want the end result to look like, to not look like he was murdered. And that's because I just remembered that of the people on the list that that we know have been killed and how they were killed, one of them was a heart attack. The other was a car accident. But I, I, as far as the syringe, we talked about this. Like, I, I think this is more of a cinematic choice. I think audiences are, like, terrified of syringes. Yeah. And, like, it happens a lot in the film. Like, it's just like, oh, there's a syringe. You should be terrified. You know, well, we're not given the reason or or knowledge of what is in the syringe. If it was uh, lethal, then we'd give that minus spy points. But since we don't know, and we do have reason to think, like we have supporting evidence that they're uh, perpetrating their kills in ways that are trying to look like accidents, uh, I'll excuse it from the minus spy points and give credit to the. I'll, I'll give the movie the benefit of the doubt on that one. Of course, when that doesn't work out for the first team, the second team comes in with like no compunction about just shooting the hell out of the house. So uh, (laughs) I think that makes sense too. Like maybe you have a plan A, try to do it quiet. And if that doesn't work, uh, especially if they're read in on Frank Moses file um, that you just plan B is like, take no chances. Uh, Just, just get the shit done. Although then, of course, they've also, I guess they're going to have to drag a bunch of their their comrades' bodies out of the house. But I guess they've worked that out when they get to it. Um, slight minus spy points for uh, the fact they named Unit 1 Unit 1. Because when he hears that on the radio, if there's a Unit 1, that tells him there's a Unit 2. <laughs> right. <laughs> He does his trick with uh, putting bullets in the pan and and turning on the burner. Uh, I went ahead and checked to see if that would work. Yes, it would. Plus five points. Um, the yeah, that was great. 
I, it's it's great. pretty clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, the velocity of the shells is really, really low. Like, yeah, you might like you know, it's there's a danger you could put your eye out with them or something. Right. But uh, like on MythBusters, they they did uh, them in a microwave, and the bullets just cracked the glass. They didn't even penetrate, and the sounds would not be as loud as regularly discharged uh, ammunition, but yeah, they would make a racket. What I liked even more, uh, I've always had, I've always had like a, like a kind of a weird fetish for like um, super elaborate evacuation, like get the fuck out of Dodge uh, planning. Yeah. Um, like, uh, I don't know. Let's see. Did you see Parks and Recreation? Did you watch that show? Yes, absolutely. Um, the I think it might have been my favorite thing ever when he finds out that his wife is in town. Oh, Ron Swanson, which yeah, wife? first wife or second wife? The the elementary teacher or Megan McGauley, who is his real wife? I don't I don't remember, but uh, the thing was like he runs into the hall and like I think he grabs something and like slams it into the wall to make a a quick like foot hold. So that he can leap up and reach up through the ceiling panels to grab his burn bag. Super funny. I love that kind of stuff. It's common for me in role-playing games to have my characters, like, kind of set up those kind of things. Like, I like having, like, a second safe house that has, like, you know, extra ammunition. Or, like, in this movie, like, a storage shed that's filled with all the guns I might need. I just like that kind of stuff. And uh, the way he's got his set up is uh, you need a sledgehammer to break through the floor to get to it. Totally tickles my fetish. And uh, yeah. it's plus five points. And that's actually my number one best tradecraft. Uh, not just that he has the burn box, but the way that it is secreted is uh, delicious for me. First thing he does when he gets out of here is to go and get Sarah, which is the the lady he's been talking to and having this uh, flirtatious relationship and kind of leading up to maybe they'll meet and, and they, at least their phone uh, relationship has evolved to the point where each of them is thinking there could be some romantic potential here. Yeah. Um, is to go and grab her, uh, apparently thinking that uh, she's going to be in immediate and mortal danger. Now he turns out to be right. But I still don't like it. I think it's a huge leap leap of logic. And by don't like it, I don't mean I don't like it as far as, like, it makes the film any worse. It's just as far as logically thinking it through, I think it's 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 too much. And, and it's another one of the things, like, the movie will just, like, kind of rush you past and not want you to think too hard about. Um, in fact, too, it's weird because later in the film, Urban says something that indicates that they weren't monitoring the phone calls. And so that's, uh, at the very least, a plot inconsistency, minus five points. Right. They should have been monitoring the phone calls. I, I think Frank is right to assume they've been monitoring the phone calls. Um, so him going to Sarah is, is probably the best bet because that's his main focus at the point. So he's thinking the other side would spot his motivation, but the fact that they weren't monitoring those phone calls, uh, yeah, that's a good minus five points. Okay. Um, 
I also think like, okay, so even if he did need to get her out of danger, the fact that, uh, well, I mean, he, he, there's some, they make some hand wavy motions about like maybe the safest place for her to be is with at his side, but that's not truly logical. And they take her into like a lot of situations that she really does not need to be there for. And and that there's no reason to take her along, except that she's in the film and we like their interactions. Um, so I want to give minus five points and call that my worst tradecraft of the movie, number three. Completely agree. Terrible tradecraft. She shouldn't have been brought along. But this goes back to my point earlier that this is a romance. And, you know, you were talking about, like, being triggered for abduction type of thing. Like, romance novels always, not always, but oftentimes have abduction or uh, gray area rape. You know, like, like if you, like if you go to the bookstore and you look at the romance novel uh, type of, and I only know this talking about, like, this type of stuff when, like, my mom complains about this all the time. Like, she is like, why is this romantic? It's not romantic, but that that's where the romance comes. And that's, that's why I'm saying this film is really a romance. Like, it's all about, like, Frank and Sarah and how the situation in the novel she was reading actually occurs for her. Like, she's reading the novel and then it actually occur- occurs. I'll go as far as saying it's a romantic adventure, but I gotta, I, I gotta quibble with like literally, a romance has got like kind of a technical definition that this movie doesn't uh, fall into because it's not like like in a romance along the way the question like the 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 two characters are each other's antagonists they're both the protagonist and the antagonist and of each other mirrored and the plot resolution is them overcoming their own internal flaws to eventually be able to to be together and uh, oh well from that standpoint then you're right that it doesn't follow that definition but i'm just talking about that like there are so many romance tropes in this film i see what you mean oh yeah 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 yeah. that it's ridiculous and and so like you know when our uh, film discussion earlier where where it was like oh if you get triggered about a, a female abduction, that's why I was like super into like, ah, no, you don't understand. Like all these, like, like, like those, like the, the cat lady romance novels always have abduction or like, like gray area rape in them. And it's like really concerning for me. And like, <laughs> I only bring this up because my mom gets triggered over this all the time. Cause she's just like, this is not romantic, you know? But apparently that's what sells, you know, they just want to be whisked away from like their normal boring life, which is the premise of the film is Sarah's like some like uh, customer service pension call person. It's a pencil technician. Pusher. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and, and she's living alone and we already get that scene with that one date she had that wanted to be asked upstairs and she was like, yeah, no. And that's when we first see Frank, like, just broke into her house. He's like, hi, it's me, Frank. Like, everything is going to be okay, right? You know, like, 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 that's what I'm saying. This is, like, such a typical romance, like, trope. Like, it, 
like I think you're right by the technical definition, but like it, it, it there's so many romance tropes going on, it's ridiculous. Let's talk. Not that I'm into romances, I'm just a weeb. I, I, I watch a lot of anime and, and, and films and and I don't I don't care about particular genre. Like certain genres like really like tickle me, like you know, like a like a like a mind fuck or like a something super depressing, like a magnolia type of thing. Those are like like right up my alley type of stuff, but like I'll watch anything if it's good. You know what I mean? Like like I don't, I don't so so like as far as like romance tropes like I, I I can spot them because I've like I I try to expand my experience or what I'm exposed to. Like as long as it's good, it's got to be good. You can't give me like some Twilight shit and be like, oh, this is romance. Like okay, yeah. You know. I don't know. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. Let's talk about Carl Urban. Yeah. <laughs> any movie, any story really where we've got someone that's for some reason like falsely accused of something, which isn't quite the situation here, but someone that, uh, I don't know, the system is is out to get or destroy. Everything is everything's pointing to that the protagonist is a threat, a danger, needs to be taken out or captured or arrested. Blah blah blah. But some somebody's gonna, you know, along the way develop some kind of suspicions that that what they're being fed is not the real truth. And in this movie, Carl Urban as Agent Cooper is gonna fill that role. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's I think he's the only developed character. Like I I, I think all the other characters are like kind of like just uh, cookie cutter characters, even though they were great performances. I mean, we have an all star cast, but like Carl Urban's the only one with like an arc, you know. Uh, and and by arc, I mean like a. You're like correct. A you're you're yeah. absolutely you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, and nothing against you know movies that are essentially cartoons, uh, which this one primarily is. Uh, if it's done well, like, uh, glory to ya. Um, I was, uh, wanting to bring up that it's the second film that we've talked about where we've seen Carl Urban plant a fake fingerprint. The other one being, uh, Born Supremacy. And I gave minus spy points. In Which the also born- had Brian Cox. Oh, that's right. Oh, you're right. <laughs> it's safe. Oh, we. Aha. <laughs> Callback. Go back and check our boring. Uh, what is it? Born supremacy. Su- yeah, supremacy is the one that we did. Yeah. Uh, I gave it minus spy points in that one. Not necessarily. Well, not necessarily that he couldn't do it, but I did not believe for a second that the CIA would not be able to detect a fake. Uh, I did a little more extra digging because I just wanted to double check my shit. Um. And I found not so much uh, evidence that this is something you can really do and do effectively, but in like my most direct evidence that it's something that kind of exists out there is that there was a 2003 article in Evidence Technology Magazine, uh, Mm -hmm. which talked about the correct ways of identifying a fingerprint as having been planted. 
So at least by 2003, somebody was thinking, hey, we need to spread this information that, you know, this is a, a thing that can happen. So certainly if that's true, then by 2010, uh, it's out there. I'll still stand by my minus buy points for Born Supremacy because everything I looked at of the ways you can fake a fingerprint uh, are actually pretty flawed. And certainly the CIA would spot a fake in a second. But in this case, I'm not going to give uh, uh, minus spy points because we don't know who the agency Urban is trying to fool uh, when he fakes this fingerprint on the guy that he's killing in his introductory scene, his little day at the office uh, kind of thing. I loved the meticulousness of planting hairs in the shower, you know, uh, and like, like, you know, like in that little, uh, the thing at the bottom of the shower, the drain, mm-hmm. you know, where like, like it, it, that whole scene is great. You know, uh, it, it, it really went through the steps of kind of planting, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad there was an article of the difficulty of planting fingerprints. Cause that's kind of concerning other things you could probably plant, like, you know, maybe like, skin fibers or like hairs or whatever, but fingerprints are like a different thing. It is a good scene. And along the way, uh, the script is smart enough to, um, to look at this scene and say, it needs to be humorous in some way in order to keep it again, like, you know, all the movie vibrating at the same frequency mm-hmm. that they include I'm not sure I call it a joke, but it's a, it's a gag of some kind that the whole time while he's doing this, he's apparently like he's talking to his wife about like some problems their kid is having at school. He's having a perfectly normal domestic conversation that even ends with, uh, you know, just before he kills the guy by kicking the stool uh, out from under his feet where he's got him strung up. Uh, like his very last thing is just confirming what kind of milk he's supposed to bring home from the grocery store. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is another day on the job. We're simultaneously establishing him as a badass and a threat, but the movie is subtly reminding us like, hey, don't take any of this too seriously because we're not going to take it too seriously. But that's his introductory, you know, kind of day at the office kind of scene before they call him in and... uh Apparently, the the conceit is that since the South African hit team failed to kill Frank Moses, now for some reason, uh, the CIA is going to directly send uh, a black ops killer guy in the form of Carl Urban to uh, finish the job. I didn't like the fact that when they give him this job, they just uh, give him the information basically suggesting this guy was just an analyst, like, uh, you know, not a field operative and certainly not a field operative with, uh, uh, you know, a whole bunch of murder and black ops kind of stuff under his belt. That's minus spy points to me because if they know anything about Frank Moses, they know that you can't, I mean, you, if you're going to send someone after him, like they need to be prepared for what Frank Moses is. Right. 
Absolutely. Definitely minus five points on that one. Like, you should, you should just, you, the person you're sending after, you should give them enough information to handle the threat they're going to deal with, unless they assume this guy is always prepared, which he seems to be that type of guy. He seems to be a very meticulous type of guy. I also noticed that, um, uh, you know, uh, Carl Urban finds the, the torn checks that uh, Bruce Willis's character, Frank Moses, was tearing up so he would constantly have more excuses to talk to Sarah on the phone. And uh, I'll flag that as minus spy points because I am morally certain that uh, Frank Moses would be a kind of guy that's in the habit of shredding his documents. Yeah, this is probably more of a cinematic thing. Like you have that shot of him like piecing the two pieces of a check together. Like, aha! Yeah, putting the two torn pieces of check together, uh, like right in front of the camera. That's very much a like uh, I don't know, uh, color color by numbers kind of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, look, he's putting the pieces together. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. He is going to put the pieces together. He is going to figure out that, uh, I don't know. I don't remember how he figured out this guy is like way more dangerous than, than what you guys led me to believe. Uh, maybe the fact that Frank's house is completely shredded. I'm not sure what we, what, I don't know if we saw all the carnage and if the bodies were still there and we have no information about like what the cops kind of reaction to that situation was um but uh one word or the other he goes back to his boss and says this guy's no analyst he's super dangerous you haven't been telling me everything she sends him down to get uh frank's file from the record keeper ernest borgnine uh he gets the file which is ridiculously redacted it's clearly just meant as a you know a joke in the, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, going along with the flavor of the film. But, uh, I, you know, as soon as he's coming out of the place, he's like on the phone asking, telling someone like, I need to know this information. I need to know what he, what jobs he was on, who he worked with, you know, uh, what his history is. And that is dumb. I call it minus five points because you just looked at the file. The file's got nothing like then you can't just call people up and I don't know. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. I'm quibbling with a lot of stuff. There's a lot to quibble about, but that's Carl Urban and his deal. And, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll circle around back to him as he resurfaces, uh, through the movie for right now. Let's go back to Frank and Sarah who, um, followed up on the the reporter's death kind of situation and uh, got their hands on a list. Uh, the list looks like everyone on it except Frank and this one pilot are dead. Frank can see on the list one of the names that is supposedly dead, actually supposedly died two years ago. He doesn't think he's dead. And that would be his old friend Marvin, or his old frenemy, Marvin, right. <laughs> by John Malkovich. Delightfully by John Malkovich. I'm he was my favorite character. I, I, I just want to point massive plus by points, because you know how much like I'm into the conspiracy stuff. So like I got really giddy over this character, just because of how like 
terribly paranoid he is constantly. To a normal observer or to, uh, you know, just someone with uh, just access to Google, uh, there's only two names on the list that are still alive. Uh, That'd be the pilot and Frank Moses. But Frank, seeing Malkovich's name on the list, uh, you know, he'll make the the quip when she questions like, why are we going after him? He's been dead for two years. He's been, he says like, Oh, Marvin's been dead a lot of times. Like he, <laughs> and perhaps some other people in the know would, would not look at uh, um, a report of him having died in a fire as being any kind of evidence that uh, Malkovich's character has indeed uh, slipped this mortal coil once they get over their little, uh, you know, quips about killing each other, the last time I, you know, why are you, why are you trying to kill me? I'm not. Well, you were the last time I met you, et cetera, et cetera. They just, you know, make that uh, little oh, hand, handshake and just kind of, you know, move on. And and for the rest of the movie, they're just regarded as total cool friends. I got some. I got minus five points. Uh, wondering how the fuck did the pig get through security, or uh, Malkovich's enormous magnum, for that matter? Um, <laughs> the pig. No. The pig with the grenade launcher in it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's 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 cute. It's funny. Um, yeah. Funnier is much funnier is uh after Malkovich like seems to like be just completely flipping out on some random random lady at the at the airport later when she shows up it's one of the funnier like fuck yeah moments of the movie where she does reappear and, and this this is one of the many moments that Marvin like shines he clocked her like he was right but i also want to talk about how great she played her point as far as like an agent she was like i'm a cold war banker i woke for coldwell bank i'm a real estate agent they empty your bags marvin's like she's got a camera in her bag and, and you know like uh like we've talked about clutter um that that's like a big spy thing like where like just have shit on you that sells the story you know like i i think i've brought this up before in our podcast where like you know like they they say don't have a baseball bat in your car. Like, 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 and this is more law stuff, not spy stuff. Like a lawyer will tell you don't have a baseball bat in your car unless you have a baseball glove and a baseball ball. Right. Like, like you need to like make things look different. They empty your purse and it's all just shit. Like, you know, like this goes back to spy game where we were talking about where like uh, Robert Redford's teaching Brad Pitt, like just keep shit like some gum and like, you know, some cigarettes and a lighter, like shit, shit that makes sense. So like, and the, there, techni- a lot- the technical name for that, that we've run into is clutter, right? Yeah, actually the term is pocket litter. Oh yeah, that's right. So we like we like her for having having uh, read that page of the secret agent manual. Yeah, it's it's just, it's just really interesting. Like like Marvin clocks her following them, and then like like she's freaking out, and like so the movie like 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 if you're just watching the film is just like just ignore any sort of like 
judgment. Like you're like, oh wow, okay, Marvin was wrong. He's just a psycho, right? We later find out he was right. She, she was following them. But what I love about this scene is she actually just had a buttload of pocket litter. There was no camera. There was no gun. There was no she. She's just a real estate agent. That's 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 all she is, and that's all she'll ever be. And then she just shows up with an RPG later. What I don't like about the scene is the um, again it it. I mean, it goes back to the to the idea. I think that the you know the bad guys should have gone after pilot guy much earlier. It's it's just very like cinematic uh, tunnel vision storytelling that uh we follow our protagonists that we have to follow our protagonists to get to the pilot and to get to the moment just before he's about to say the name that would spill the beans on the whole thing that it's at the last moment you know very dramatic that uh the sniper shot comes from the helicopter and silences him you know they should have just handled this uh on the side like like on their own time it's like it's like in some movies in some movies the the heroes and the villains are both proceeding on their own separate timelines and in right. some movies uh we're we kind of like are meant to just forget about what the villains can and should be doing like the villains kind of go to sleep and we just follow the heroes until there's like uh, you know what the scriptwriter thinks is an interesting point to reintroduce the villains and 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 merge their timelines. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Now, if Frank Moses didn't know before that he was in deep water, uh, he definitely knows now because, like, this attack on the airport is 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 pretty serious. Um, their visit to Malkovich did. You know, and and what his information that he was able to glean from the list is it does have to do with Guatemala in 1981. So Frank Moses, along with Malkovich and uh, his girl Friday, <laughs> Sarah Ross, <laughs> right. uh, are are they want to they want to break into Langley and find out more about Guatemala 1981. And for some reason. The way that he thinks they're going to do that is to go to another frenemy. Um, it's kind of like uh, in some stories, there's a king's journey where he, like, at every stage, at every chapter, he uh, a- accumulates another ally. So at this point, he's picked up Malkovich. And... The next sequence seems to be really like an excuse for him to accumulate some some further allies. For some reason, he is going to need to talk to the Brian Cox character, who is a, I think, still active. You think maybe retired? It's not exactly clear. Uh, KGB agent. Retired or not. Uh, Brian Cox and Frank Moses are going to make their standard for this movie jokes about uh, killing each other or, or, you know, dreaming of killing each other right. <laughs> uh, in, in the, in the case of Cox, you know, he, he mentions that, well, you know, I still owe you for, for Igor, who is my cousin, Igor, Frank Moses uh, counters with, uh, you know, 
Igor's not dead. I flipped him. And uh, whether that's true or not, it's plus five points in the moment. And I'll go right. with my best tradecraft number two, uh, even though it's not necessary, because I assure you the script writers would have just hand waved their way past this uh, in the first place. <laughs> he wants, he's here because he, okay, so he wants to infiltrate Langley, find out more about Guatemala which is problematic in a way that we're going to talk about later. Here, I want to point out a big problem. I think uh, I'll call it total bullshit. The Russians would have all this information on infiltrating Langley, all these passcodes and security protocols and everything. And even if you can buy that, mm -hmm. I cannot forgive the movie for the fact that Frank Moses a supposedly loyal CIA retiree, loyal to the U.S., we have no reason to suspect otherwise, that he would know that Brian Cox has all this information that compromises Langley's security and not tell the CIA about it. Minus five points, my number two worst tradecraft of the movie. They're going to go into Langley. They're going to, again, bring Sarah along. We're going to ding it again. Minus five points. There's no reason for her to be there. Uh, it does turn out to be fortuitous that she's along, I guess. Because, uh, you know, with the dropped contact lens thing. When she drops the contact lens and then, like, like you know, the alarm bells go off and then the, like, like high security SWAT team shows up, points guns at them. She's just like... The general has dropped his contact lens. This is great, great improvisation. Because like I've said in before, like when I pick the best and worst, I, I, I try to find things that are like pivotal to the story. There's, uh, there's a couple things that uh, I only caught uh, from checking out like the goofs page on IMDb. Um, but I thought they were, I thought they were worth mentioning uh, at certain points when, you know, quote unquote, General Moses is being challenged by armed guards. They give him a hand salute. And somebody mentioned that armed guards in the performance of their duty do not lower their weapons to hand salute anyone. Mm -hmm. Like if you're on, if you're on, you know, like, you know, we, we understand, or at least we kind of understand neither of us uh, is super versed in military protocol, but we, we've always understood like there's a certain like, Mm, you know, culture of saluting that's very mm -hmm. significant in the military. But mm -hmm. uh, apparently, like, if you're on guard duty, uh, you, you're you you're not supposed to salute under any circumstances. So well, that makes sense. That pulls us back to Forrest Gump, where, like, it Lieutenant does. Dan is like, don't fucking salute me. Snipers will shoot me. You know? like Oh, right, right, right. But yeah, but I can think of count. I I feel like I can think of not not by name, but like countless movies where uh, you see you know the big brass show up and the guards uh, salute them as they mm -hmm. go through, and uh, apparently, yeah, that's not that's not correct. Anytime you see that, that's a uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're not supposed to salute anyone, not even the president. Period. Um, also someone mentioned probably a veteran that, uh, 
Also, for someone that's supposedly a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, someone said that Frank's salute is completely terrible. So uh, <laughs> someone dinged you on that, Mr. Bruce Willis. Yeah. Go, go to yeah. salute school before you make a movie. Right. <laughs> here's, here's Especially for your ex-CIA, you should know all of the salutes. That, that's part of your job. Learn your shit. Here's a better one. And this is a little pedant. This is, I mean, no, this is not a little pedantish. It's, it's very pedant, but I liked it. Um, now he's wearing a U.S. Army general officer's uniform. And somebody noted that he's uh, wearing the uniform of a four-star general. And that is particularly risky because there are only, uh, and it's even by law, there's, there's only so many four-star journal- generals that can be on active duty at any given time. Uh, this person says the army would have had about 10 at the time of filming. And it is most probable that anyone at any of the security at Langley or the Pentagon or any, anybody like that, they would have known by, by name and face, they would have known the, the 10 four-star generals that existed at the time. Oh shit! You know what I mean. Should have made my worst. They, wow! It's that's kind of a good, a deep, it's kind a of a deep line. cut, but I liked it. No, that's good. That's really good. Because you, you yeah. I mean, you 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 can't pick that up unless you you are that spot on that you notice that he's a four star general. You know, like if and, he was a two star general, like whatever. There's probably like I don't know three hundred of those guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but a four-star general or a five-star general, like now you're getting apparently up to this like rarefied level where like, you know, everyone knows who you are. That's like, right. at least that's involved in security around these kind of uh, facilities. So yeah, yeah, you like that one? I like that one. I-, I like that one a lot. That's a good find. That should have made my worst. That they, they shouldn't have dressed him up as a four-star, but a two-star. The ruse works. The plan works. They do get to go see Ernest Borgnine uh, in the records department, and he cheerfully hands him over the Guatemala file, which is only partially redacted. Um, so they're going to have some more information. We're going to talk about the information we get from the Guatemala file in a bit. Here's our quibble, right? Why don't you tackle this one? I have no idea. After he got the Guatemala records, he goes to Cooper's office, who's uh, played by Carl Urban, and just starts a fight for no reason. I don't, I don't get it. Like, why would he do that? There's no reason for him to see him. Absolutely none. Right? There's, there's nothing. It doesn't make sense. What we see on like, screen, he's triggered by the, the fact that Borgnine tells him, like, hey, by the way, this guy accessed your file yesterday. And he says, oh, change of plans. But the change of plans, it, it accomplishes zero. Right. There's, there's other than a, an action scene to keep the audience busy, right? Which mm-hmm. I, I, I guess cinematically is the only an reason. Ex- an excuse for a, a very great Aerosmith song to be played during a fight. Right. Yeah. Like, it's it, it's a great scene, like, as far as a fight scene goes. But, like, there's no reason for this to happen. None. Like, it, it, none. So I, I, this is making my number two worst trade craft, and I think this made your number one. That was my number one. 
Yeah, it's a total like uh, Uroboros kind of snake eating its tail situation because, uh, you know, the product of the fight is that he gets Urban's uh, key card, which they used to escape, but they wouldn't have needed the key card to escape if he hadn't started the fucking ruckus in the first place. Classic, <laughs> classic example of a scriptwriter just like hand waving some shit off and thinking that we're not going to pay attention to it. Oh, the firefighter disguise that 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 they used to escape with. Uh, I want to give that minus. It's fucking really. It's it's fucking Langley. Like it's cute. I like it. I don't buy right. it. Oh yeah, it. they probably would have cameras everywhere. This goes back to my quibbles about spy game. Like, well, no, my thing, my thing is that you don't that you don't check like the 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 firefight. Like they check the guy that Bruce Willis is carrying, but they don't check him because he's dressed up as a firefighter. And I don't, I don't, I I I think Langley's tighter than that, even under a situation where like the building's on fire. Oh, okay, I see. That's yeah, good. yeah. What I, what I did like about the explosive device is, is the time. He put it in a plastic gallon bottle, which made the chemical it was sitting in take time to eat through it and then react with what was inside of the bottle. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how realistic it is, but it, it's great for a movie. They make their way out and... Um... Uh, we find out that Joe is alive, uh, and Joe—that's the um, Morgan Freeman character, who by this point in the movie we had thought was dead. But this is a weird one. When Frank found out that Joe was dead, I mean, nobody—we didn't actually specifically get any like dialogue stating so it was mostly done like like through kind of innuendo but mm-hmm. there was a huge crime scene there were cops all over the place there were ambulances everything was roped off etc etc so why did anybody think joe was dead at the very most the people at the retirement home would have seen possibly evidence that uh joe was missing and with some evidence suggesting that, like, uh, you know, and with a dead CIA assassin left. Yeah. You know, some kind of altercation had happened and Joe's missing. They wouldn't have reported that he's dead unless there was a body. Uh, and there was no right. body because he's not no. dead. Right. <laughs> right. Let's cut it here. Uh, we've gotten to Langley, and we've got the in hand the Guatemala file that corroborates the reporter's list and gives our hero characters most of the information that they'll really need to proceed along the plotline. And I don't mind saying it, a lot of it doesn't really add up if you think about it, but uh, what we'll do is come back next week and have our say about that. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And if you can help us out, give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show, and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. 
Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.